All right, everybody, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 to begin our Bible study. I thought it would be uh, useful for us to do a summary of these first 10, 10 verses. We've spent two weeks trying to do them at this point, right? <laughs> so, uh, and, and rightly so, because it is certainly uh, not only complicated, but uh, there's certainly an awful lot of teachings that come out of this paragraph. So it's useful to get a chance to slow down and kind of break down what's going on. Uh, in this section. So a little bit of summary over these first 10 verses, and then this will be your chance to ask any other questions you might have about this. And then if we're all on the same page and feeling good, then we'll we'll finish off the chapter and, and all that. All right. So uh, we've seen in those first three verses of, of chapter 20, there's this uh, declaration <clears throat> that Satan is bound uh, for a thousand years. And so what that means is you see there in uh, verse 3, that he is no longer allowed to deceive the nations. And we uh, have spent time talking about the deceiving of the nations has a reference point back to chapter 12 uh, and verse uh, 17, where we see that that meant that Satan is using a world power to persecute uh, the, the people of God. So uh, bound for this thousand years. And of course, the big question is, well, what's the thousand years? And we've seen all throughout this book that these are uh, the whole book is taken as symbols that goes all the way back to chapter one. So this thousand years represents the total time of Christ's reign, for, which began at his resurrection and continues all the way until his return. So that's how I would summarize uh, those first three verses. Satan is no longer allowed to do what he was doing in chapters 1 through 19. <laughs> He's been locked up uh, and is prohibited from that for the duration of the reign of Christ. In verses 4 through 6, it starts telling us that those who have died for the cause of Christ, they are pictured as victorious, overcoming, and reigning with Christ. That shouldn't be surprising. Remember chapters 2 and 3 to each of the seven churches of Asia it was written to them that if they would be faithful, then that they would overcome and they would be granted a particular reward. And you see that summarized here, I think, in verses four through six. By contrast, the unfaithful, they are described as also being raised, but they're not reigning with Christ. Of course, they're going to ultimately be judged. And that judgment sequence is found in verses 11 through 15 that we will plan to talk about in a few minutes. Verses 7 through 10. So then you, this is probably where, where all the questions come in. You notice that verse 7 says that at the end of the thousand years, uh, Satan will be released to deceive uh, the nations. So same definition, Satan deceiving the nations means he can use a world power to persecute the people of God again. But I think verse 9 is, is particularly interesting, is, and this is where we kind of left off last time, is that, you know, it doesn't say there in verse 9, and so then there's all of these awful things like we've read about from chapters 13 to 19. Instead, it just says as, as he's gathering all the, the kings of the earth together, that fire comes down from heaven and destroys them. <laughs> you gotta go, okay. 
So to me, I get the sense that the point is, is that there's going to be another effort of Satan, but God's not going to allow that to get anywhere. And as all as he begins to do all this, God's going to destroy that effort. And then Satan is judged in torment. As you see in verse 10, he's thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then the final piece is back in verse 8 with this statement about Gog and Magog. Why, and why, <clears throat> excuse me, why is God going to allow Satan to be released for a little while to try to go and deceive the nations only for fire to come down from heaven and destroy them? Well, that's why you have the phrase Gog and Magog. That goes back to um, Ezekiel 38 and uh, 39. And I mentioned last week, if you want a 45-minute talk on Gog and Magog, I did one. <laughs> but I'll give you the 45-second answer right here. And so the 45-minute answer, the 45-second answer is Gog and Magog has a picture of God allows the nations to stand against God's people as a means by which God can rightly judge them. They are given the opportunity. You're going to obey God? They refuse. All right. Since you are standing against God and his plan and his people, God ultimately judges. So that's what you see here as we're coming to this final judgment. It's the final chance for the nations to come to God. They're not going to. And God's going to judge them rightly uh, because they uh, disobeyed him. So. That's how I would sum up those those first 10 verses. The first three verses, Satan's no longer allowed to use the world power to deceive the nations and persecute the people of God. The faithful of God who die in Christ, they are reigning with him. The unfaithful who die are awaiting final judgment. And at the very end, Satan will have one more effort, but God's not going to allow it. He's going to bring about a final judgment. And that's what verses 11 through 15 describe, which is where we left off. And that's the fast cliff notes answer. <clears throat> Questions? Forever hold your peace at this point. This is your one through ten section of questions. But it's important again, as we've mentioned many times, that this is a section of symbols and imagery. And we're trying to get, okay, what's the imagery pointing to? What are the symbols talking about? What is God doing in these uh, final moments here as he is wrapping up? with these end time images at, at the end of chapter 20. Or you feel good about that, Dave? You know, when we go to the movies, we always like to see a good ending, a happy ending, kind yeah. of thing, which, you know, we have Revelation and Chance 21 will get us But with this kind of destructive kind of thing that's going on, there has been so much located around, what does that look like? What's that World War I?
at a point where God just comes and it's over. Yep. That's, that's right. And I think that passage along with 1 Corinthians 15 are, are two of the primary reasons why, um, as you look at verses 7 through 10 and this final thing that can seem really strange, that, well, here we are right toward the very end, Satan being allowed to deceive the nations again. Are we going to you know, witness a, a global world power persecuting the people of God like the Roman Empire? But you have... Second Peter 3 talking about, well, this is going to Christ is returning like a thief in the night. Well, if I'm allowed to witness this return of a global entity persecuting the people of God, then I don't have a thief in the night. I actually have a sign. I have something to look at. You also have first Corinthians 15 where Paul speaks and says that uh, after all of his reign, it doesn't say and then there's going to be this really long, drawn-out battle with Satan, and then comes the end. It just says, then comes the end. It just it seems like it's over and done. So uh, to me, there's a lot of indicators that this is not suggesting, and then we're going to have a 400-year revived Roman Empire that's going to do the same thing all over again and, and all of that. And as I mentioned last week, to me, verse 9 very much parallels chapter 16, where... Another term that's used and kind of used improperly, the Armageddon, they're all gathering in the valley of of Megiddo, this Armageddon sequence. And if you remember when you read chapter 16, it doesn't say, and they all gathered in Armageddon, and then there was this long drawn out battle, and then it was God against, it just was, and then God destroyed them too. It was just instantaneous. He gathers them at this one place for judgment. And this looks the same way. Here is Satan, okay, one more chance, and God's going to allow that as a means of justice and judgment on the nations, but not to allow it as some long, drawn-out thing. So that's the reasons why I read these ten verses in that way, is because I think other texts inform this to have to read it that way. All right, Vicki? That's a really important question because I, a lot of people come to this text and they read in verse 3 of Revelation 20 that he's thrown in the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And everybody goes, wait a minute. All right. Who's still being tempted? A hundred percent everybody. Right? So how can that how can that possibly say that? So that's why clicking back into chapter 12, verse 17 is important. So let me summarize what chapter 12 did. You have a picture of the dragon. He wants to destroy God and God's plan. And at the beginning of chapter 12, it described the dragon ready to devour the child. 
And this is a symbol of trying to destroy Christ. So Christ is going to come. Satan's going to do everything he can to destroy that. You see the temptations of Christ. I believe that you have Satan believing that the death of Christ is going to be his victory. And so he attempts to do that. However, then the text says, as he tries to devour the child, he is rescued, he ascends, and the dragon fails. And the end of chapter 12 then tells us, so all that he has left to do is to go make war on the offspring. He's going to try to destroy the people of God. He can't thwart God's plan. He was unable to destroy the Christ. So what does he have left? Try to get us. That's it. It's all said except trying to just deal with us. And so you will notice that at the end of uh, chapter 12, you see this beast then coming up in chapter 13, rising up out of the sea. And then chapters 13 through 19 is all about this beast that I've mentioned many times. There's like only two things that scholars in the book of Revelation agree on. One of them is that the beast is the Roman Empire. I mean, it's just one of the few things everybody goes, yep, that's got to be the Roman Empire. So Satan's using the Roman Empire in those early centuries as the world power to deceive the people and persecute the people of God. So roll that image now to chapter 20. He's not allowed to do that anymore. And I think you can validate that not only after the Roman Empire do we see a global world power using that power to destroy God's people. You see powers and you see persecutions, but not together. And that fits Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Daniel 2, there's four nations, and then that fourth one is destroyed by the kingdom of God. Same thing in Daniel 7. Four beasts, fourth beast is destroyed, the kingdom is given to the saints saints of God. Same idea. So what this is pointing at is not that Satan doesn't have power to deceive. Ephesians, he is the prince of the power of the air. He is going around causing problems. He is deceiving. He's doing all that. What God is not allowing him to do is recreate what you see here in the book of Revelation, causing a singular world empire to use its power to destroy the people of God. That has been put at a halt. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and that's that's going beyond what the text has given us. This this is the limitation. What did Satan do in the in Revelation? This. Everything else, that's not what it was talking about. So you would have to impose your own ideology and thoughts on top of the text and make it do more than, than what it what it's saying, Kathy. <clears throat> Yeah, it's an image of like this. So you you put, and again, this is symbolism not really happened. 
<laughs> Dragons put in a pit and, he, and God put a lid on it and sealed it and locked it and chained it for 1,000 years. Now, obviously, that's spiritual beings. Okay, but God's using images to try to communicate. He can't get out. <laughs> He's in the pit and the lid's on and the seal's on and the chains are on. And the only way he's getting out is when God says, I'm going to let him out for a little while. That, that's it. He doesn't have a chance. So it's not that Satan, when he feels up to it, is going to try to do this again. It, it's not within his capacity. It's when God goes, yes, Mike. I, I think uh, <clears throat> you know, we get caught up in the symbolism as far as time frame, the thousand. But when you mentioned the seal of the chain. Yeah. And then you read release from prison, you ask yourself yeah. why. But yet we know he's here. And then I think what we did is we get tripped up when the word nations is going again to receive the nations, because automatically we want to go default back to world powers, but people make up the nations. And right. It's an individual attack on sure. those people. And uh, the irony is it references battle, but it really a battle implies a fight. This is really not a fight. This is annihilation of uh destination. Yeah. And, and if you want more details about that deceiving of the nations, go back to chapter 13. And all this has been recorded. And you can go listen to chapter 13 again, because I think we spent a couple of classes on it. But that's how he was deceiving the nations, was getting the people to give their allegiance and their power and their worship to the nation rather than to God. That's what 13 was all about. Julie? Yeah, Uh, why don't you hold on, because there are other hands, and we, I'll come back to you. Debbie? The way I would look at it, along uh, well, the same lines, was that if he was totally bound up and couldn't do anything, then we wouldn't have illness, we wouldn't yeah. have war, yeah. we wouldn't have anything. It right. would be like heaven, yeah. and it's not. So obviously he can do things, he just can't do right. as much as he was which, that's right, and please read it in the other direction that sometimes we don't read this. We, we give too much credit to Satan, and God's coming in and saying, I'm totally in control of what he's doing, and I'm stopping it when I want to stop it, and I'll start it when I want to start it, and I'll end it when I want to end it. He's not just running around going, ah, I'm doing whatever I want to do, you know. No. He, he, he's in the abyss. And when God opens the lid at the end, he isn't running very far before fire comes down and wipes him out. It's, it's not for you to be afraid of, oh, no, it's God going, I've got this. I'm just telling you a little about what's going on. It's almost like God going, I shouldn't have told you. You're freaking out. I'm in charge here. I got this. He's in the abyss. I, I've got him chained. I'm going to take care of him. Well, and, and I think the book of Job shows us that on a microcosm. No. God will allow. That's right. And and this is what goes back to verse eight. There is a purpose for God allowing Satan out of the abyss to deceive the nations. I, I've made this point to you before. Could God just go, okay, Satan, you're done. I'm sick of you. Anytime. He could have done that in Genesis four. 
<laughs> right? I mean, we could have been, here's man, here's woman, here's the fall, here's Satan death. Boom. I mean, could, there's a reason God allows Satan to do what he does and allows him to run the way that he runs. And here he uses the term Gog and Magog's the reason. And you're supposed to know Ezekiel 38 and 39. Our problem is we don't know Ezekiel 38 and 39. So we go, oh, Gog and Magog. All that means is when you read those two chapters, God using the nations in a way so that when judgment comes, it is a rightful judgment. And I, where did I put that? So that's somewhere up here, right? I, I, I'm pretty sure I said that somewhere in this, in this summary. Let's find it. Uh, there, that was the last line. Same's released so that God can rightly judge the nations. God, God's not going to be capricious and arbitrary here. The nations are given their chance. They're going to go down the same road again. God's going to go, okay. And thus, when for final judgment to come, when Christ finally comes that second time, it will be a rightful judgment on the world. That's all that Gog and Magog means. That's all Ezekiel 38 and 39 meant. was God's allowing nations to run against his will and against his people so that justice can come. that's, That's it, okay? All right, anything on that, and then I'll come back around again. All right, Julie, you had something five minutes ago. <laughs> hey, now, I'm still stuck, you know, like I said last week, so let's go back to the rest of the dead. Uh, All right, let's find that on my screen now, yeah, okay. All right, so the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. Right. And then it says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So blessed is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So could it be that the rest of the dead, Jewish three categories of And I understand the confusion, and there are definitely a lot of writers with a lot of different points of view about that, and some make a distinction like that. So I won't go to war with you on if you want to look at it that way. I don't think that's the point. So that's why I'm not seeing it that way. I, I'm, I'm holding the idea even of, of Revelation 2 and 3 that this is just trying to distinguish what happens to the people of God who are dead they are killed for the cause of christ and the answer is they're alive all right so in that sense they're a part of this resurrection of sorts they're not dead like the unfaithful waiting for judgment they're already enjoying reward and comfort and reigning with christ however there still has to be another resurrection and please keep this in mind Resurrection is the reanimation of the body, right? Otherwise, it's not resurrection. The body has to come back to life. If somebody dies, okay, let's use Lazarus. It wasn't that, well, his spirit was alive and therefore he was raised. No, 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 no. The body was made alive. He walked out, (laughs) right? When Jesus rose from the dead, 
He says, see my hands, see my feet, the body resurrected. So that's what resurrection is. So that's why you have this idea of, okay, they're not just dead, dead. They're with Christ. But that doesn't know, that's not the end. And sometimes that's how we, Christianity has often pictured it, is we're just like disembodied spirits floating around in the nether realms of, no, the scriptures say resurrection. The body has to be reanimated. Now, don't get concerned about that with your body. Remember, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, yeah, it's going to be that body, but it's going to be a changed body. Okay, so it will be brought back to life and wherever it ends up at and however it ends up and whatever particle shape it's in. And it will be changed because you need a spiritual body for a spiritual realm and presently we have fleshly bodies in the fleshly realm we don't have time for first Corinthians 15 but that's that whole chapter right real resurrection that has to happen so that's that's why i think it talks like it does is trying to indicate the dead they're not enjoying life but they do have to be raised for judgment that's what verses 11 through 15 are the faithful they're already enjoying. So they're not like, and again, I think in some ways we can hear this and think, well, duh, obviously, but it's not that obvious. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4, one of the questions the Christians had was if they die before Christ returns, do they miss out? And that's why he writes them and goes, no, no, that's it. They'll be raised and we'll all be caught up and we'll meet the Lord in the air and we'll be because what happens (laughs) if they're dead and God has to teach this idea. Okay, yeah, the body's dead, but that's all right. We've seen this picture over and over again. Where are those people of God? They're around the throne. They're reigning with Christ. They're alive with him. They're in comfort. They're in paradise. They're enjoying these things. But there still needs to be the final real bodily resurrection. So that's why, that's how I, I, I look at it. That's my explanation of what's happening there. Dathan? This might be dated, but in, in um, uh, First Corinthians, Paul says that we know that if the earthly tend to be living, is destroyed by the pavilion from God. And he goes on and says, therefore we groan and we long to be clothed right. with our heavenly bodies. And I saw a connection there. Mm-hmm. same idea yeah same idea i think and that's the way i look at it as well as and i'm i don't even remember what i used to believe 20 years ago on this but i might what julie said i might have seen it that way because that doesn't sound foreign to my ears about well they experience a different resurrection and all of us after that are on a different at some point in the in the future Uh, and again so i won't rule that out but uh, to me i think that's pressing the detail the The detail is verse six. The second death has no power over them. That's the big point. So they died physically, but that's all right. (laughs) They're alive and they're not separated from God. They're reigning with with Christ instead, Julie. Mm-hmm. But then it says that, you know, that 
they're going to come to life when the thousand years are ended. Right. And then blessed are those who are a part of that resurrection. So if they're the ones who are unfaithful, how are they blessed to be a part of that resurrection? I guess I'm having trouble with the rest of the dead being evil, but yet they're blessed. And I, it, it, there's just, it, I understand that. I understand because I think you're one of the ways to look at it is just to walk it walk through it linear, like next next group, next group. And I look at verse five more as like and the parenthetical and the rest of the dead. But it's okay. You can you can hold Heather. You hold it. It's fine. I'm just I'm trying to explain why I look at it the way I do, Mike. Well, allegedly, right? <laughs> allegedly. Yeah, you have a first and a, and a second death in here, but it's interesting, and people will often make the point here, well, it doesn't say there's a second resurrection, so uh, so I won't just step on that exactly. Uh, but again, the way I'm looking at verses 5 and 6 is more to the point of trying to describe verse 4, what is happening to those who have died for the cause of Christ. End of verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I would say then this is saying that's the first resurrection. But here's this parenthetical at the same time. The rest of the dead, their first resurrection isn't until the final judgment then they will be raised so that verses 11 through 15 can happen standing before the great right throne and experience judgment Take. I think you are saying she's not wrong no. because you have the fifth in the cross okay. yep. you also have Elijah Moses yep. that uh, comes and shows yep. up with, with Peter and John um, you have first Thessalonians 5 where Paul is comforting them about the idea of his life listen they're not in problems. And then we also have the parable of Luke 15. 16, 16, yeah. Where he talks about that, you know, the, 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 the rich the man and Lazarus. Yeah. yeah, or the rich guy is in torment. Yep. The poor guy. So we know that when you die and you've already left, you never saw God. Yep. You are not a child of God. Your faith is already sealed. Yep. But there is still a second resurrection before you get condemned to. You know that lake of fire which we'll get to in right. right. But the thing here is, is we can take comfort, and it's not like I know there is like Catholicism teaches that the pregnant. This is nothing about that. It's just like the dead in Christ, yeah. they're in a place that we're waiting for Christ, and they're ready yeah. for Christ. Yeah. So. And, and that's what I and I see what Julie's saying as well. And again, because I've I think I've seen it this way is. The question to me is, is is this saying that these qualities of the people of verse 4, beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, did not worship the beast, uh, are they experiencing something different than everybody else, either beforehand or afterward? Thus, that's the first resurrection. So... 
Right now I'm on the no. <laughs> but there's two ways to look at this. The way one is, is, yeah, it's saying something specific to them. And the way I'm looking at it is this is representative of all the people of God. Everyone who has not worshipped the beast, the mark of its image, who has given their lives for Christ, who have been faithful unto death. Uh, and to me, that's befitting of Revelation 2 and 3 with the seven churches of Asia is the same idea as those who are faithful will enjoy this. And I think I can go through the New Testament and confirm this because when the Apostle Paul was talking about whether to live or to die, he spoke of it is better to die and be with the Lord. And so there seems to be conjunction with this is that those who are faithful to God immediately are with God and are reigning with him and enjoying paradise immediately and are not waiting for final judgment. They're already there. So that's one of the reasons why I take it that way. But I understand it. And like I said, you can go find a lot of books that will say it the other way. And I'm just trying to explain why I'm looking at the way that I do. Debbie? And that's why I've talked about what I think the second resurrection looks like is that the reanimation of the body at the final judgment and all of that. But I was just making the point that you aren't going to read that word right here. So I don't want to get too stuck on it since it doesn't say it. It seems to be more talking about um, the condition of the people of God who have died for the cause of Christ are alive. They're not waiting but experiencing life already until the full resurrection happens. Okay. Mike? I, I think uh, in a context potentially resurrection essentially may not be a good thing because you can be resurrected and thrown into a lake of fire. <laughs> so we've always associated resurrection with salvation and nothing else. Yeah. So Good. Well, and can, can I use that as my, my transition into verses 11 through 15? Uh, I will. How about, how about that? I will. <laughs> and, and I think that is, is absolutely right. You'll notice in verse 11, you have this great right throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place found in, in them. This, to me, this is unavoidable to be descri- not describing final judgment. I don't know what this else could be to be saying, here we are with the one on the throne and there's no place, no need, no purpose for sky and earth. <laughs> they're, they're gone. And then along with in verse 12, or verse, yeah, verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small standing before the throne. Is anybody left out? Okay, so we've got everybody being judged at this point. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So I want us to notice that the real big point of this section is nobody's avoiding judgment. It, 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 like every sentence is a repetition of everybody's being judged. Verse 11, great right throne. There's no earth and sky anymore. Verse 12, the dead, small and great. That's everybody. Verse 12, the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Verse 13, even the sea gave up the dead. Death and Hades gave up their dead. There's like no hiding or running away from this judgment. It doesn't matter where you are or how you died or, or where you ended up alive on the earth, dead in the sea, spirit in Hades, you're standing before the great white throne of, of judgment and anyone's name who is not written in the book of life is cast into fire. So back to, to what Mike was saying, right, the... The unfaithful being raised and standing before the throne of God is not a plus because they are judged. And and that would make sense. I mean, any idea of justice or courtroom system that you would conjure in your mind, you're standing before the throne and you are judged by what you've done. That's what verse 12 says. That's what verse 13 says. Twice over, you're judged by what you've done. So nobody's getting away with this. And again, this is a comfort to the people of God. I mean, we all feel this. Aren't the wicked going to receive justice? Aren't the people who do wrong, aren't they going to ever have some kind of judgment pronounced against them? Because it seems like on earth, they get away with everything. They're the ones with the power and the money and, the, and they do all these things. And how come there's no justice? And here's a picture of God going, there is a final tally one day and nobody's getting out of it. And it doesn't matter who you are, small and great. You're standing before that throne and you will be judged for what you did. That's the hope. Now think about what the context of chapter 20. What have they done? They've persecuted and killed the people of God has been what our context has been, right? Are they getting away with this? They're not getting away with this. Are these nations getting away with this? They're not getting away with this. Is Satan getting away with what he's doing? He's not even getting away with what he's doing. You have the beast, the false prophet, the dragon, everybody's thrown in the lake of fire. And those who are not written in the book of life, they're also thrown in the lake of fire. The whole idea is God balancing the scales at the end. Now, here's my question. If you've been with me long enough, you know the answer. Why doesn't God balance the scales now instead of waiting until the end? What's his deal? Come on. Why doesn't he just balance the scales now? Because we're all doomed if he does right now. We're all in a world of hurt if he balances the scales. Now, that all sounds great when you talk about everybody else out there. In fact, that's our Sunday morning lesson because that's, that's the way Jonah thinks. That's, that's Jonah's thinking. We want God to balance the scales now. And if God goes, okay, I'll start with you. How are you feeling? <laughs> Rather you do the seven billion other people on earth first, right? Give me a little bit more time. All right, well, that's what he's doing. The balancing's at the end. 
But he's going to balance that scale. He has to. All right, Julie? So verse 12 is exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 12. Verse 48, he said, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So when I read verse 12, it just immediately reminded me of what Jesus was saying. And I love that about him because it reminds me I can't judge because Jesus said, I didn't come to I yeah. didn't come to the world to judge the world, to no. save them. That's right. The world. My, the words I've spoken, that they're going to judge them. Yeah. And then here you see that. The books are open, and we're judged based on what we've done. Yeah. One of the top misunderstood declarations of Jesus. Jesus says, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. How come he didn't come to judge the world? He doesn't have to. <laughs> the very next sentence is, it's already judged. It's in the darkness and doomed. Him coming to judge is completely unnecessary. We're already ruined. We need somebody to save. We're already under condemnation. He doesn't have to come to judge. That's already been put in the dockets at Genesis 3. We're all bad. We're, we're all doing terribly. Miriam? Another one of Jesus' teachings about narrow is the way is yeah. his work Evidently, evidently, uh, and, and that's that. It, it's a it's a neat image. You keep the symbolism going, and you think about uh, a, an accounting or a reckoning of sorts. Is that you know the books are opened, and all the deeds that have been listed on there are all are all in the books. Now, don't let that roll by you fast. Stop and think about that for a minute. According to what they've done. So here's God opening the books on the final day and everything that you've done is listed there. (laughs) Right. Well, and Jesus said that too. Jesus is the harshest of all. every, Every careless word, every careless thought, all written in the book. All right. I need somebody who's going to have white out and an eraser, <laughs> right? That, that's what I need, right? That's what Christ came to do, right? That's the whole point is you need a savior because at the end, the books are opened and it's all there. And you better have an advocate. You better have someone who's going to blot out those sins. You better have someone with a mighty pile of erasers to be able to erase the slate clean so that you can stand before God and be okay. This is why there's the problem of thinking you can stand before God based on your actions. Good luck with that. You can't possibly do anything to undo what's in that book of all the things thought, said, and done. So that's the whole purpose of the cross. That's what this is all about. So this is what that's driving at. The faithful... They're alive, they're rejoicing, they're reigning with Christ. Everybody else, not going to be good. Final judgment, cast in like a fire, Dan. This is where I don't think maybe we need to understand the value of repentance. 
because in essence, Second Peter 3, whenever we get tripped up with Revelation a thousand words, I always go back to Second Peter 3, 8, where he says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Sure. This is where the Lord is reminding us, thousands don't yeah. get tripped up. Yeah. The deal here is, is that's a long time for us. Yeah. It's nothing for him. The length of time was because for our benefit was right. time. In that the Lord is long-suffering to us. That's what he's showing us is, I'm giving you time to repent. Sure. And it's not just the people out there that I appreciate the mention of, because the thing here is, is we have to repent. That's right. These careless words, unfortunately, in this flesh, sometimes it happens. That's right. But um, do we have a mind as a child of God to come go before God confessing our sins, repenting, and then he says in first John, yeah. he is faithful to forgive. That's what strikes us clean in right. that book of life. Not the fact that it's like, oh, hey, I'm a pious person. I'm coming to church every Sunday. All these things that we should be doing, but in essence, is the things that we trip up on our sin, that we're not confessing and asking God for forgiveness and repenting of these things, so that literally it's the blood of Christ that makes us clean. That's right. And, and, uh, that, and that's what this is trying to drive at, is this distinction is finally going to come to reality at the end. It's, it's not now. And to us, we're all about time. Well, what's taking so long and what's going on? And as Dane's bringing out, that Peter reminds us God's not moved by time. Time is not relevant to him. Now, we don't understand life without time. I mean, there has to be time. We can't even comprehend what timeless really is. You know, so we come up with like, you know, uh, eternity is like an ant, you know, going across, circling the globe a million times and that's like the first day of eternity. You know what I mean? It's like, you can't, we can't even get our head around something that just keeps going and going. Just as much as you can't get your head around God not having a beginning. That just, everything has a beginning and end to us. <laughs> everything has time. And God goes, yeah, but you don't understand. I'm not bound by that. I'm not operating under those constraints. Your 80-year lifespan is not my constraint. <laughs> I'm operating on a bigger, bigger level. And, and this is reminding them of that. You're going to die. And you're going to stay faithful to the Lord. And that's okay because the books will be put to right at the end. Uh, everybody is going to stand before God. Small and great. And that's our hope, is you don't have to worry about what's going on. God's got this. You don't have to worry about injustice. God's got this. You don't have to worry about evil. God's got this. You just stay faithful. All right, we're out of time. Uh, 14-minute break. We'll reconvene at 1030 for our next hour. Next time we pick up Revelation, we'll try to start 21. But if you do have questions, you can go ahead and bring that, and we will continue forward. But Revelation 21 next week, 14 minutes, and we'll be back at 1030. Thank you, everybody.